So good afternoon uh, to all of you. And uh, we're going to get started because I know we also have a virtual audience that maybe hasn't understood that we've had some delays here. Thank you very much for your patience. We had uh, some African heads of state and other dignitaries uh, uh, at the panel upstairs, so that's why we're starting a bit late. But thank you so much for joining us. My name is Charlotte Hebebrand. I'm from IFPRI. I head communications and public affairs. And it's our pleasure to hold this breakout session at this year's Burlock Dialogue uh, on behalf of the CGIR. We are a CGIR center. And um, as you can see, the topic today is what has the war in Ukraine meant for Ukraine itself but also for food systems around the world. So we are now 20 months into this uh, conflict in Ukraine. And when we were planning this event, we didn't realize that we would have another major conflict um, that has emerged. We know we've heard a lot over the last few days about what we at IFPRI call the triple C's, right? Food systems are really being uh, sort of put to the test as a result of conflicts, climate change, and of course COVID also still has uh, some lasting um, uh, impacts on, on food systems. We do expect, unfortunately, that uh, conflicts are increasing. Climate change impacts are also making themselves more felt. Um, and um, we do expect that there may be more food system shocks coming. Um, so the big question, I think, today we want to look at what has this meant for, for Ukraine and for food systems, but also in, in sort of in, in light of the theme of this year's dialogue, which is harnessing change, we also want to think through, well, what have we learned from the crisis uh, in Ukraine that might help us as we try to build greater resilience to what are inevitably going to be more shocks to, to food systems. So a big welcome to, to all of you. Um, I'd just like to quickly show you our program. Um, we have a very, very distinguished uh, set of speakers with us today. And I will um, introduce them in turn. And let me kick off now um, to ask uh, the uh, system board chair of the CGIR, uh, Lindiwe um, Sibanda, to welcome all of us uh, and, and to join us here for this discussion. Lindiwe is in charge of overseeing all of the CGIR as, as our board chair and has been a, a big presence here at the dialogue. So thanks for uh, kicking us off, Lindiwe. Thank you very much. It is indeed my great pleasure to open the CJR IFPRI session on the food system repercussions of Russia-Ukraine war. There couldn't be a more fitting topic to discuss at this time, given everything that we see and hear about in the Middle East. We need to be doing deep dives and taking lessons from what is happening around us. Today's session brings together key experts to dive deeper into the wide-ranging impacts of the war on Ukraine, its people, its farmers, and the widespread repercussions on lower and middle-income countries. Allow me to express my gratitude to USAID for their tremendous support both to Ukraine and countries, especially the low-middle-income countries that have been impacted by this crisis. I'm delighted that dinner 
is here with us. We've been on several panels and met, and I know your passion on seeing how research, how development, and how innovations can reach the people who need them the most, more so in a time such as this one. Thank you for your love for development. Uh, I want to also appreciate your hands-on experience because it is your takeaways that will help us better prepare for the future. I want to thank our distinguished speakers from Ukraine, the FAO, and CSIS. Thank you. The winner of this year's World Food Prize, Heidi, founder and chief executive of Roots of, Roots of Peace, a humanitarian nonprofit organization that transforms minefields into farmland. So we are celebrating her, and it is therefore fitting that we'll also be talking about how severely um, the widespread use of landmines on Ukraine's agricultural land has impacted one of the world's major breadbaskets. My special thanks also go to Joe of IFPRI and David Labode of former IFPRI, I almost said of IFPRI, now with FAO, for their hard work and their real-time coverage of the impacts of the war on low-middle-income countries. Also, thank you, Charlotte, our moderator today, and for all the support that you've received from all your colleagues, and we recognize and celebrate you for the award that you've just received. Um, the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association 2023 Award for Excellence in Communication. Congratulations. There are many drivers of food insecurity and conflict ranks amongst the top. Since February last year, the international community has worked hard to make sense of the impact of this terrible conflict on food systems already impacted by the pandemic. New UN figures indicate that around 735 million people are currently facing hunger, an increase of 122 million from year 2019. CGIR research centers, especially IFPRI, were able to provide monitoring, analysis, and advice on the impacts of the crisis on food and nutrition security and on ways to mitigate those impacts. CGIR has continued to play an essential role in the international response, with our efforts focusing on some of the immediate needs, such as real-time monitoring and early warning, evidence-based policy communication and advocacy, research solutions for humanitarian challenges, faster dissemination of improved varieties into the seed systems that serve those most at risk, and we focus on long-term solutions to build greater crisis resilience, given the likelihood of more frequent, severe, and possibly compounding shocks triggered by epidemics, climate change, extreme weather events, and the geopolitical conflicts. These efforts are part and parcel of the science and innovation we deliver to transform food systems and make them more resilient to future food system shocks, such as soil fertility solutions for resilient to fertilizer price and subsidy shocks, stronger national agricultural research and innovation systems, and many other examples that I can share. Without taking away from live experiences from our researchers, 
I'll sit down and look forward to a productive and engaging discussion that can help further guide efforts to improve crisis response, but also build systemic resilience and sustainably nourish all the people. I thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Lindy Wei, for getting us started. Uh, Lindy Wei is traveling all over the world on behalf of the CGIR, is doing an incredible job in promoting uh, efforts to improve food security around the world. And importantly, she's a farmer as well. So it's, uh, she's got many, many different roles going on. Um, it's now my really great pleasure to invite Dina Esposito um, to also provide some remarks from the perspective of USAID. I think she's well known to all of you. She heads uh, USAID's Bureau for Resilience, Environment, and Food Security. And has been, uh, USAID, of course, has had a tremendous role in reacting to some of the severe shocks that some of the countries had as a result of uh, the Ukraine invasion and is also now very actively engaged in thinking about how to build resilience. Uh, so the floor is yours. Thanks so much, Dina. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here with you today. Uh, a special thanks to IFPRI and CGIAR for hosting this really important conversation. They've been really vital partners, both in the analytical work that's informing the US government response after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and after the COVID crisis as well, like how do we shore up food systems and uh, also in uh, surging support to smallholder farmers. Um, as you heard um, Charlotte say, in uh, the, after Putin's unjustified invasion of Ukraine came after the three C's, right? COVID, climate change, and protracted regional conflicts. And it really exacerbated a food crisis in a world that was already reeling from, from many of these other shocks. In addition to the horrific loss of life and livelihoods inside Ukraine, the invasion upended, as we know, global fuel, food, and fertilizer supplies laying bare the over-reliance on a handful of exporting countries to feed the world, as well as the extreme vulnerability of certain net food importer nations. And many of them were food insecure countries in Africa, precisely where US global food security efforts through Feed the Future initiatives were concentrated. Uh, the US government response was, has mirrored the two sides of the conflict. On the one hand, providing unprecedented assistance and support to the people of Ukraine, while also stepping up to mitigate the crisis, um, especially in, in vulnerable countries around the world. We were a strong and vocal advocate of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which helped Ukraine export more than 30 million tons of food to the world when operational and was by far the most efficient export channel, reaching hungry people in some of the neediest places. At the same time, we've also been supporting Ukraine's efforts to export food through alternative routes, as well as improving storage and sustaining production of agriculture, the backbone of its economy. Through an initiative we call Agri-Ukraine, we've helped farmers pack and store more than 840,000 tons of grain and access more than $54 million in much needed financing. This is helping to keep their operations going, feeding people today and allowing uh, for a quicker recovery tomorrow. To date, the United States has contributed $350 million to this effort and leveraged an additional $250 million from private sector 
um, investors as well as other donors. And we would welcome, follow -up, welcome a follow-up conversation with any of you here in the room or online who would like to join us in this effort to support you say, uh, Ukraine's agricultural sector. Now looking beyond Ukraine, through both food assistance and Feed the Future, USAID was well-placed to respond to the war's knock-on effects on hunger and malnutrition. And we've surged support to ensure millions of farmers have access to improved seeds, fertilizer, proven production practices, and financing to help offset historically high prices for many inputs. And some of this work, as you heard, has been done in partnership with the CGIAR and a large consortium of partners who are helping uh, to do that. We've also helped through emergency funds to keep small and medium enterprises going, um, helping refinance loans and that sort of thing because they're so vital to the ag economies and the places where we work. And finally, even with our development monies, we are providing support to social safety nets to uh, help uh, with nutrition services for vulnerable women and girl, uh, girls and women and children. We're also, of course, deeply invested in long-term uh, development commitments. Uh, to build resilient food systems. And this includes a focus on expanding local and regional agricultural production and markets. And one of the key, if obvious, uh, perhaps takeaways is that this agenda is more urgent than ever and it require, it's going to require multiple long-term investments. The U.S. is providing technical support to regional institutions to help the continent realize the African Free Trade Initiative an ambitious effort which would be a huge resilience wind projected to raise incomes by some 100 million people across the continent, in part by cutting red tape and simplifying customs procedures. We're also working directly with Af African nations and in partnership with African universities and think tanks to help countries create more efficient and effective policy and regulatory regimes that are so crucial to facilitating larger regional markets, fueling private sector investments, and we're helping governments think through um, other ways to do uh, smart subsidies to help the most vulnerable while freeing up resources for critical things like research, extension services, and infrastructure, all things that we know are required for both productivity and resilience. Now, the, on the African continent, the crisis also brought home some core truths that fertilizer has been a low-value proposition for many smallholder farmers because soils are for, poor and they don't respond, or they don't respond because they lack the right fertilizer and information on how to use it. This has shifted the conversation away from a narrow focus on fertilizer availability and access, which is important, but also to one that embraces the urgency of improving soil health of Africans' ancient soils. And at the AU Soil Health and Africa Fertilizer Summit next year, um, we intend to express our support for the full implementation of the AU's 10-year action plan, make significant and new investments in soil health, and invite others uh, to support nations with multi-year investments to realize the vision of the plan, which is, is an impressive and ambitious agenda that is also really important for resilience. Now, we've also learned that global food shocks have an outsized impact on women as both producers and consumers, as well as on the small and medium enterprises that are the backbone of the agri-food system. Women grew hungry at a rate faster than men due to global shocks, and today 126 million more women than men are deemed food insecure. FAO estimates that if we simply leveled the playing field for women in agri-food systems, global GDP would grow by 1%. That's nearly $1 trillion 
and we would reduce the number of food insecure people by 45 million. So gender equality is not just right, it's profitable, it's smart, and it's key to building more resilient food systems. At USAID, we recently committed to doubling our food and water security investments in gender equity and women's empowerment to 335 million in the coming year. Women and children, women and young people are central players in the small and medium enterprises that sustain the agricultural economy in many low and middle income countries. SMEs are Africa's largest employer and economic engine, and yet three out of four of them cannot access bank loans, and often formal finance is absent entirely. They have been particularly hard hit by the knock-on effects of both COVID-19 and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Last month, USAID joined with Norway to announce FASA, the Financing for Agricultural Small and Medium Enterprises in Africa Fund. It's a 70 million first loss fund that will make investing in these businesses less, less risky and thus draw in the private sector investment needed to build more resilient food systems. We invite others to join us in order to reach our fund goal of $200 million. These investments are well-timed given recent research by Michigan State University, which describes this hidden middle of input suppliers, off-takers, transporters, and wholesale enterprises that are ready to take off, fueled by urban and peri-urban population growth and growing demand for safe, nutritious, easy to prepare and affordable foods. So while the global hunger picture is indeed challenging to say the least, there is also a strong undercurrent of vibrancy and possibility in the very same places that are often categorized as hungry. There's an old saying that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Both Russia's war on Ukraine and COVID revealed weaknesses, but, but also some strengths in the food systems, local to global. And it's up to all of us to learn from these bitter experiences, as we can say with, I think, much certainty that more shocks are on the way. So here are some of the lessons I see. I expect others could add to the list. On the plus side, a lot of what we have long prioritized has, uh, has added to the resilience of the food systems under stress, and more of it is needed, right? Investing in innovation for sustainable on-farm productivity, empower women as economic actors and decision makers, increasing access to finance, and um, and advancing policies that foster more efficient markets and trade. Economists tell us that markets, that markets are resilient by nature, and we have learned that markets themselves are sources of resilience, and they give people access uh, and options. So let's continue to focus on increasing potential while reducing risk, and if we do that, we will grow investment opportunities from farm to table. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dina, to you and, and to USAID for your great work. Um, we're now going to move to a set of speakers to do a bit of a deeper dive on what the conflict uh, has meant for Ukraine and then for, for global markets. And I would like to say that I'm very keen to have a, a, a good Q&A session. After everybody's spoken, we'll ask uh, our speakers to join us up here on the panel and take questions from you, as well as questions uh, of our audience online. 
And I understand that we've been given some time to go over the, the, uh, the one hour time slot. So um, looking forward to, to hearing from all of you. So our next speaker is joining us remotely. Um, uh, we're really delighted to have Antonina Broyoka with us. She is right now with Kansas State University. Unfortunately, she's actually quite close normally, but she's traveling, so we're delighted she's, uh, she's joining us uh, online. Uh, Antonina, uh, prior to, to being in Kansas State, really since the war broke out, uh, prior to that, she was with the Venezia National Agrarian University in Ukraine. And she's going to speak to us today to provide an outlook for um, the Ukrainian ag sector in light of the, uh, the, the war. Over to you, Antonina. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, for the interest to the topic because it's really, really important topic. And also I want to appreciate my gratitude to USAID, uh, which provides such a huge support to Ukraine within Agri-Ukraine project and all other supports as well. Unfortunately, Russian military aggression to Ukraine ruins its agriculture, making a great impact on its economy, neighboring countries and the world, especially in terms of food security. And um, Ukraine was always known as a breadbasket due to its high agricultural production potential and very fertile black soil. In 2021, Ukraine was a world leader in sunflower uh, oil export, third in corn, um, barley and rapeseed export, fifth in wheat export. Ukraine was feeding 400 million people around the world per year. Now, Ukrainian agriculture suffers from terrible destruction. The direct damage to agriculture reached $9 billion or more than 20% of its physical assets. The largest category is destroyed or stolen agricultural machinery and equipment. We lost around 13 million tons of grain storage capacities. Hundreds of thousand tons of fertilizers, fuel and grain was destroyed or stolen. Indirect losses of agriculture amounted totally to up to $31.5 billion due to lower production level, uh, soil damage, logistic disruption, lower price for export-oriented commodities, and high inputs cost. As a result of all those um, damages and losses, the production of grain decreased by 37% oil seeds by 24% following the reduction of the cultivated areas and yields. A logical consequence is reduction in exports. However, the main reason for this is not in production, but in Black Sea ports blockade, which were a traditional export road from Ukraine. By the end of 21-22 marketing year, Ukraine had almost five times higher ending stocks. Thanks to grain initiative and development of alternative roads, Ukraine in 22-23 marketing year exported 49 million tons of grain and legumes. We exported 6 million tons more of corn, but less wheat and barley for 2 and 3 million tons respectively. But if we compare this October with the previous year, 
our export is twice lower due to limited operation of Black Sea ports. Monthly dynamic of commodity export directly reflects the performance of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which started in August 2022 and ended in July. Each drop of the graph corresponds to another sabotage by Russian inspectors. Totally, since the beginning of the war, Ukraine exported 35 million tons of corn, 20 million tons of wheat, and 7 million tons of sunflower oil. Since August, wheat export exceeded corn export for the first time ever because last corn harvest was almost twice less and its export was pretty intensive, so now we have very low ending stocks of corn. Complications with Black Sea ports logistics forced Ukraine to develop alternative roads for export via land borders and the new river. During the year, the new river ports almost doubled their shipment of grain. And since May, they transship more than more grain than Black Sea ports. However, even with the full loading, the new ports will never be able to replace Black Sea ports. This is why, after Russian withdrawal from grain initiative, Ukraine established new humanitarian corridor uh, to and from greater uh, Odessa ports. As for now, 46 vessels entered Ukrainian ports and 25 already left, loaded not only with grain, but also steel, iron, and other products. Russian invasion to Ukraine uh, immediately provoked inflation, increasing food insecurity uh, in import-dependent countries. Now we observe kind of stabilization in world prices, but not for Ukrainian grain. Ukrainian wheat is the cheapest, which makes it attractive to millers in other countries, but due to high risk, there are not many villains. Ukrainian corn is almost $85 cheaper than Argentinian and $65 cheaper than American. Ukrainian barley is over $100 cheaper than Australian. It makes no economic sense and liquidity for Ukrainian farmers to produce, but they still do. At the same time, we observe high food inflation in Ukraine. This creates some economic food insecurity for the country as well. Ukraine is still self-sufficient in term of food production, but decline in real purchasing power makes food less affordable. In average, food became 33% more expensive since the beginning of the war. There was enormous deviation in prices for fruits and veggies that traditionally been produced uh, in the south of Ukraine and also for eggs due to significant loss of poultry. As a result, Global Food Security Index in 2022 for Ukraine declined from rank 58 to 71, below even those countries where Ukraine would traditionally export grain. 
Um, this year, we expect to harvest more than 10 million tons, uh, million hectares of grain and legumes, which is 12% less than in 2021. As for now, we already harvested 22.3 million tons of wheat, 5.8 million tons of barley, 9.2 million tons of corn, and 4 million tons of rapeseed. The average yields are lower uh, to pre-war level because Ukrainian farmers obviously were not able to apply enough fertilizers and on time, of course, vegetation calendar and agri-technology were not followed. Totally, grain and uh, legumes and oil seeds harvest is expected at 80.5 million tons. Uh, the forecast for corn harvest is 28 million tons, 14 million tons less than in 2021. Wheat harvest is 11 million tons less than in 2021. Sunflower seeds are expected up to 14 million tons, which is 3 million tons less than in 2021. Consequently, Ukrainian export of grain legumes and oil seeds in 2023-24 marketing year is expected at 49 million tons, including 22 million tons of corn, 16 million tons of wheat. This year, we expect to plant winter crops on an area of 6.3 million hectares, which is almost 30% less than in pre-war year, but 16% more than in 2022. 600 hectares more of winter wheat ex is expected uh, than in 2022, but it is still 33% less than in 2021. So with the war ongoing, further drop in grain and oil seeds area is expected. The pre-war acreage level can be reached uh, not sooner than in 2030, because it will take several years to demine fields and return them to cultivation. Ukrainian producers move to wheat and barley production as war continues and will resume to corn after its end. But due to the yield difference, Ukraine will produce more of wheat than of all other commodities. The area of sunflower will increase at the expense of grains area. Although production will not return to the pre-war level, Ukraine will still continue to play important role on grain market. But first of all, we need to liberate our land, rebuild our economy, especially agriculture. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Antonina, for, for giving us that really detailed outlook, um, and thanks for joining us. I'm now going to introduce our next two speakers at the same time and ask them to, to come up one after the other, because they kind of go together. Joe Glauber and David Laborde are actually the real recipients of the report from the, uh, from the, for the award that we received from the uh, uh, Applied Economics uh, Association. They have done just a stellar job of, I, I think the first blog that was produced went out actually a day or so before the invasion actually occurred. And they have just really done real time reporting on what all of this has meant uh, for Ukraine, for trade and for, uh, for countries uh, that are relying on, on those imports. Um, so Joe Glauber is going to kick us off. Um, he's going to give a presentation um, on the impact of the war on global markets. Joe's a, a senior research fellow with us at IFPRI, 
And then he will pass the baton to David Laborde, who used to be with IFRI, and he is now um, the director of the FAO's Agri-Food Economics Division. And David will focus on um, policy measures that countries outside of Russia have taken that have actually served to exacerbate the impact of the war. So over to you, Joe. Thanks so much. Well, thanks very much. Um, yeah, and, and this is uh, made a lot easier by Antonina's nice presentation on what was going on in, in Ukraine. Um, is my slide deck up? Oh, there we are. Okay, um, so I'm gonna start sort of where Antonina left off. Oh, can we go back one slide? Oh, I can do that here, thanks. <laughs> Great start. Okay, so you know you have to remember that even prior to the the war breaking out, that prices were increasing. They started increasing in the second half of half of two, uh, 2020, uh, as a lot of countries started recovering a bit from COVID. Uh, economic activity picked up. We started seeing the surge in, in energy prices, surge in fertilizer prices, and agricultural prices uh, went up as well. Uh, tied in part to some uh, droughts around the world, particularly in South America. But even prior to, uh, as the war was breaking out, and indeed, I think what got David and I interested as tensions started mounting in, in Ukraine, we both sort of looked at each other and said, gee, this is a major agricultural supplier to the world, and we know already that, that markets are very tight. And that's what um, got us originally looking at this. And so what happened was that, that, of course, with the war, prices spiked. First few months, um, you know, wheat prices hit uh, record levels. Corn prices were up uh, near record levels. Soybean prices all very, very high. And in part due to the fact that, one, it was unclear, it was, it was clear with the blockade that Ukraine would not be able to export a grain. It also wasn't clear at first whether or not Russia would be able to export very much. And between the two of them, you're really talking 30, almost a third of the wheat market or so in terms of what's traded in the world comes out of the Black Sea. Uh, uh, you know, Ukraine is a major pro uh, uh, producer and exporter of uh, uh, maize as well, as Antonina mentioned, and also uh, sunflower oil. Where between Russia and Ukraine, about 75% of the market. So all of that was a lot of concern. Prices started coming down really by about May. Um, they, they sort of peaked at those levels. They came down a lot over the course of the summer. In, in, sorry, in some part due to the fact that um, uh, one is we did have the Black Sea Grain Initiative that went into effect in, in August, but also the fact that, that we we're seeing fairly good production around the rest of the world. So if I can go to the wheat exports, uh, you can see that wheat exports were projected to fall about seven, or projected to fall about 7% in 23-24, so still down. But you can see what's happened is, it's, yes, um, Ukraine actually was able to, as Antonina said, with the opening of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, they were able to get out gr uh, grain, um, some 30 million tons that way, and then additional 
some uh, 10 million or so uh, plus grain from uh, using the so-called solidarity lanes, which really helped a lot alleviate the storage pressures and other things that the country was facing. But as, as um, so grain was making its way to the markets and as those prices came down, you know, countries were able to find um, exports from other, uh, other areas. The problem is, is that we'd had a fairly major drought in North America in 2022, so there wasn't a lot of North American grain on the market. That came back strong in, um, uh, uh, but luckily we had very good crops out of uh, Europe and, uh, ironically enough, Russia. Russia had a record crop last year. They have a, a next, uh, looks like another very, very large crop this year. And you can see that there, those, for, for at least Russia and European Union, those, uh, those uh, 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 exports have been made up a lot for the loss uh, elsewhere. Where we do see, unfortunately, the reduction is what Antonina referred to, is that is the fact that because the cost of exporting grain is so high, out of Ukraine, and the fact that there, uh, por portions of Ukraine are occupied or in war zones, production there is uh, unfortunately uh, very much limited, and it's down anywhere from 35 to 40 percent, uh, pr depending on the you know pre-war levels, um, and that will have an impact on 23-24. That I keep telling people that this is a war that's affected both uh, the the crops that were. Um, put in the ground back in 2021, uh, harvested in 2022, the crops that were planted last year and now uh, a third year. And as Ukraine farmers go again uh, to plant this fall, uh, they unfortunately are facing very, very low prices for their commodities. And so I think this is a hole, unfortunately, that has to be made up elsewhere. If we go to the, uh, in particular for things like Sub-Saharan Africa, um, there, the data we, we've been using has been shipment data, so these are just reflect maritime shipments, but should be pretty good rough guides of what's going on in Africa. Those, those uh, exports are down about uh, 7% uh, uh, in 2022. I think the, the question, there are two things going on. One is the fact that Russia and Ukraine both were out of those markets uh, by and large, uh, last year. Uh, Ukraine a little bit through the Black Sea Grain Initiative, almost entirely through the World Food Program, uh, going to four or five countries along the east coast of Africa. But Russia is, is a major exporter to sub-Saharan Africa, and it too was out of the market. Now, the rest of the world did respond, uh, but not enough to offset those, those uh, declines. The other thing, of course, is remember that we had record high prices. So while the availability, why we, why, while wheat was available, it wasn't necessarily affordable. And I think there were, we see the drops in consumption, or particularly in those areas, urban areas and other things that were, where wheat is less of a necessity, where countries may have had a lot of alternative grains and other things to draw upon. In the case of, of maize, that's a very different story. There, the, you know, it's dominated by production in the Americas, uh, both the US and, and, and Brazil. Um, uh, Again, we, we are expecting a reduction, um, again, as we look in forward to 2024 for Ukraine production of maize, but that will largely be made up, I think, uh, barring any droughts or other problems, uh, production uh, problems. So the world has responded in a way uh, with, with other countries rebounding. 
So as we look in, in global ending stocks, I think the good news is from the, feed, from the side of the feed grain markets, that is, if you look at, 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 at corn, barley, et cetera, feed grain stocks actually are improving um, after being very low and coming down in, in 20, uh, 2022. They are starting to improve. I think that's why you've seen corn prices um, and soybean prices have been uh, uh, you know, uh, down substantially from the le high levels that we saw in early 2022. And if you look at, at uh, uh, things like market volatility, which I'll get into in, in a second. Wheat, on the other hand, um, unfortunately, particularly if you exclude China, you're still talking about a very, very tight grain situation. Ironically, in one sense, because prices actually for wheat have been much, much lower. They, they're certainly below pre-war levels, but uh, in, even though they remain higher than sort of pre-COVID levels, they're still quite low relative to where they were, particularly at the beginning of the war. But the unfortunate thing is, is because of the lack of the problem of, of getting grain out of Ukraine, the fact that we have diminished production in Ukraine, that is a hole that the rest of the world has to make up, and we haven't been able to do so. Argentina had a poor crop last year. This year, uh, we've had dryness in Canada. We were looking at an El Nino event that will likely affect, or we know will affect uh, Australian wheat production, which the last three years, Australia had back-to-back -back record crops. This year, we'll be uh, reflecting that. So unfortunately, as, if you're looking at, at wheat, you don't see that rebound. And, and with the sort of rebound you need to get to sort of calm uh, prices, and that's part of the reason if you look at, at um, again, for the individual grains, you know, these prices look a lot better, although, uh, uh, you know, they're down considerably from... Um, uh, pre-war levels, but still remain high relative to COVID. And if you look at price volatility, which I think this is just a measure of, of the price volatility we see in futures markets, is some sort of underlying, is a, is a pretty good underlying indicator for uh, just overall volatility in the market. What, you, what those gray bars show there, that gray band, is just what those, the volatility levels looked like over the last 10 years prior to the war. And then you can see the um, red line there is, is actually the levels that happened in 2022. And you can see the volatility just skyrocketed in those first four or five months uh, following the Russian invasion and then came down. I think the, the difference between corn and wheat is very striking in this regard, and that is that corn, mark, uh, uh, corn prices have come down. Also, the volatility in the corn market is now near the low end of the historical range. So prices are far more um, stable on the corn market, and I think that explain, is explained in part by the fact that we have been able to rebuild um, overall global uh, corn stocks. Wheat, on the other hand, because su supplies continue to be tight, all it takes is a news item about a potential drought in a, in a region or further disruption in the Black Sea. And, and we've had a lot of that with bombings of ports and, and uh, just, just today there, or, or just yesterday there were rumors in the market that the humanitarian corridor that uh, Antonina mentioned uh, was going to be stopped because of, of, of potential conflicts. That turned out, that at least the Ukraine government came out today saying that, that in fact, they were, uh, it was not closed, that they were continuing to ship. But I think these markets are going to be, continue to be volatile until we get um, some rebuilding in stocks. And I'm way over my time, and I apologize. So just to say that I think these markets, uh, you know, uh, have been resilient. 
Um, it has been a question more of affordability than it has been availability. Um, but I think that, that, again, a lot depends on what we get back to weather and whether or not we can see a return um, uh, with, with ample crops elsewhere to at least in the near term help offset those reductions in Ukraine. Because it, if you look at what's going on in Ukraine right now, being you know, 30, 35, 40% below pre-war levels, it's like having a major drought in back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back years. And I think that's the disruption the rest of the world is trying to um, uh, get through. And hopefully, uh, echoing Antonina's uh, comments that, that uh, we get some normalization in Ukraine, end of the war, and everything else. Um, but from a market standpoint, I think there, at least the, the issues are, um, you know, ample supplies. And uh, there, uh, I think, unfortunately, in the near term, one's going to look to other regions of the world to be supplying that. And with that, I'll turn it to David. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, everyone, for, for being here. Thanks, Charlotte, for organizing the, this event. So, let me now... It's going to come on the screen. Um, talk about not only the initial uh, trigger to the situation that we have seen, but actually how things can get amplified. Um, so, yes, we are in an interconnected world. The different actions uh, are combined. And actually, here I have put the four horsemen of apocalypse, uh, revised for uh, today's world. Climate change, war, bad policies, and hunger, and how they actually interact with, with each other. And let me start zooming on the first part, that is the goal of this presentation, to discuss about bad policies, and how actually, um, when a crisis, for, so let's put it like this, when a shock arrives, bad policies and bad decisions can make it a crisis even faster. And it's normal when, for many policymakers, if the shock is outside, you want to protect your countries. You want to protect your constituencies. But as we are going to see, if everyone does this, actually instead of trying to distribute the weight of this shock across everyone, we are going to concentrate it, and in many cases concentrate it on the most vulnerable. So at T3, for, for many years, we have tracked um, export restriction. Of course, different countries use different type of restriction. It can be export taxes, it can be export bans. They are applied to a wide range of products. And in order to aggregate them um, and to really focus on hunger, we convert them in calories. And on the left, and left side of the screen, you see what is your share of global trade for different weeks that are on the horizontal axis for different years that are impacted by export restrictions. So if you look at the red line, the Ukraine crisis, you will see that basically by um, end of April, we had more or less 17.5% of the world trade that was restricted. So just a few weeks 
after that. But it's a pattern that we see in most crises we have been through. So, first question, are we really learning from this crisis? Yeah, maybe not. But if you look at the COVID-19 also, you see that COVID crisis, everyone say it's going to be very bad, let's protect. But actually COVID-19 was a collapse of demand. So very quickly people realized we are not entering in a world of high prices on world markets. The problem is not to limit trade. Actually during COVID-19, the problem was to restore trade. And so a lot of the policies have been removed very quickly. That when we have actually high prices on world market, like in 2007, eight, so 2008 or 2020, it's not the case. On the right hand side, you don't see the share in uh, global trade in calories, but the number of countries. And here you start to see a slightly different pattern. Meaning that some of the big exporters try to put restrictions and then remove them, but you start also to have a domino effect. And a lot of small countries, sometimes that can be important for regional trade, including in West Africa or East Africa, continue to maintain these policies. So even when we say that as a situation is better now on world markets, there is a lot still happening in some specific location. And last year, we had this export restriction on the grains, wheat, maize, the oilseed, the vegetable oil with palm oil, but also um, on a few other products, including fruit and vegetable. But when you think about calories, really the big guys are the cereals and the vegetable oil in particular. Now, the problems is that who is, in terms of their import, the most impacted by this type of restriction? Just when we think about the quantities imported and how these quantities are impacted, Least developing countries are the most impacted, and here I show the distribution in terms of region of the world. You will see how Africa is overly impacted by that, because most of their food imports are actually this basic staple. So every time you see restriction on rice and wheat and palm oil or sunbeam oil, Africa is on the first line. So that's something we should not uh, forget. And of course, all these restrictions exacerbate price increase. So the causality between these policies and the, the price uh, evolution should not be simplified. In many cases, it's not the policy that creates the price increase. Other drivers start to generate a price increase, and policy will amplify them. And at one point, you need some countries, in particular large exporters or large importers, to take some decision to start to make the market calmer, and then price decrease. And when the price decrease, other countries say, okay, I don't need to disconnect my own economy from the markets. So, climate change. So, some of these shocks are actually um, amplified by climate shock. So, if here, a quick wheat story last year. So, 24th of February, uh, the war in Ukraine starts with the invasion, price go up, and some countries have large stock at the time, like India. And Prime Minister Modi come on the 12th of April and say, India can feed the world. We have wheat, all farmers are ready, let's do it. Let's make sure the WTO can allow us to do it. 
Basically, two weeks after, we start to see that the heat wave is hurting the wheat production in uh, India. Two more weeks, and India put an export ban on wheat. So you see how a geopolitical situation, when climate shock, and unfortunately with climate change, we have more and more of this shock, will amplify a situation that was already bad. If we look at the rise, we have a similar situation. So we start with a market that is tended. Then we have the flood in Pakistan. Pakistan is number four in terms of rice export. 15% of our rice production uh, damaged like that. So first tension on the markets. We start to see some ban, including from Bangladesh, that is normally importing and start to say the big suppliers around being impacted by negative shock. And already last year, in September, when the monsoon news were not good, India putting tax and ban on some specific type of rice. And this year, again, during the summer, below average rainfall for the monsoon. And every week or every month, a new wave of restriction coming from India. Just the last part now, um, we have talking we talked a lot about uh, the, the, the output and the grains. And just to say that we have the same thing on the fertilizer sectors, both restriction, but all also how trade has helped to, to balance things. Similar grad than what um, Joe has done before, but here we, we start in January 2006. The red line is the fertilizer um, Evolution of prices, the, the black one is energy. There is a strong link between energy and fertilizer. But as you can see, ever before the, the invasion, the fertilizer price went up, and some of these were triggered by export restriction put in place in the fall of 2021, first by China, big exporter of uh, nitrogenous and phosphate fertilizer, then followed by Ch Russia. And so we were already entering before the, uh, the conflict in a price of high prices. And so you see how these policies will accelerate things. And of course, with what has happened last year, we have seen some countries buying more fertilizer, actually, some buying less fertilizer. Once again, even when we're in a period of crisis, you have some countries that have enough money to buy what they need, and that would contribute to very high prices. But also, markets adjust. And here you see, for example, how India uh, on Eurasia start to diversify its imports. And between 2021 and 2022, they import more Eurasia from Russia. And Russia were selling less, not to say not at all, to Europe. And we see the same thing on phosphate. Brazil also has imported a lot of potash last year when Belarus and Russia had some difficulties to access markets. But actually, they end up the, the, the end, by the end of 2022, they have more potash than they needed. And in some cases, they haven't tried to resell it on world markets. So just to conclude on that, here, when we talk about fertilizer, you also have the, the question of anhydrous ammonia. And on these graphs, you see how much is traded normally every year. So it's a key input in order to produce urea and other fertilizer. And you will see on one hand all Russia in, uh, in the middle, middle yellow is green, 
has actually lose market access because due to the pipeline normally that go through Odessa, and of course with the conflict, this pipeline was not operational anymore, but how other countries like the Gulf countries have increased this capacity. And today, if you think that prices go down on fertilizer, it's yes, because today the world has much more fertilizer capacity than they need, so you will see a long-lasting impact on some of this um, disruption. So yes, policy response matters, and I am done. Thank, thank you very much um, uh, to both Joe and, and David, and I like the uh, uh, four horsemen there. Um, last but not least, we have one more presentation, and then we really do want to get to, to q and I'm sorry, I haven't been a great moderator, but there's such a wealth of material that's being presented. Um, Caitlin Welsh is with us um, from CSIS. She leads their Global Food and Water Security Program and is speaking on a really important topic that Heidi Kuhn obviously raised already yesterday. Um, Ukraine now, unfortunately, is the most heavily mined uh, country in the world. It's taken that uh, title from Afghanistan. And Caitlin is going to talk to us about uh, what all of that means for the Ukrainian agricultural sector today and what the future will be once and hopefully soon when this conflict is over, uh, what is the impact of, of being so heavily mined. Thanks, Caitlin. And then if everybody wants to come up, up to the uh, podium already, we will go straight into a, a short Q&A. Mm -hmm. Great. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, it really is an honor to join my co-panelists here to talk about one of the most important threats to food security globally, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and in particular to focus on the impacts of landmines on Ukraine's farmland, um, uh, with landmines being one of the areas of focus of this year's uh, World Food Price Ceremony. Um, among all of the, the, the ways that Russia has wreaked destruction across Ukraine's agricultural sector, um, its destruction to its agricultural land, especially through placement of landmines that I think could have particularly long-lasting effects. Um, looking at the scale of landmine destruction, what we're seeing um, uh, out of analysis is that um, contamination from landmines that is likely unprecedented this century Ukraine became the most mined territory in the world um, as of this summer. Looking at the types of landmines that are used, <clears throat> and it's, it, it's both Russia and Ukraine that are placing landmines. Russia is not a party to the 1997 mine ban treaty, uh, which bans the use of anti-personnel mines, and Russia has been widely using anti-personnel mines, including types of anti-personnel mines that have never been identified before. Um, Ukraine is a party to the mine ban treaty, um, and even so, Ukraine has been found to be using anti-personnel mines, at least on one, uh, in, in one instance. The mine ban treaty does not affect anti-vehicle mines, and both Russia and Ukraine have been using those widely throughout the war. What do these look like? What, do, uh, what are they like? It's not only the round um, you know, metal mine that you might think of. Um, there are, as I mentioned, um, at least 13 types of each of, of anti-personnel and anti-vehicle mines being used. Um, sometimes these are small mines that are encased with plastic so that, that are difficult to detect and that even look like harmless objects, like paperback books. 
sometimes they're mines that don't need to be stepped on, that they, they'll detonate even with, um, with vibrations from footsteps that are nearby. Anti-vehicle mines are not just mines that explode when a vehicle runs over them. There are some anti-vehicle mines that fire a projectile into the, um, into the vehicle that's, that, that, that's, that's um, going over it. So um, lots of different types of mines. Um, again, largest mine territory in the world. When it comes to um, the estimates of the, the, the acreage that is affected by landmines, um, we're seeing numbers. The numbers differ depending um, when it's coming from Ukraine, depending which agency is reporting the numbers, and sometimes depending who within the agency is reporting the numbers. <clears throat> um, and uh, I think that it's uh, one thing that I've, that I've done to envision how much um, line, uh, land has, that has been mined is to compare it to um, an area in the United States. <laughs> so these are very rough comparisons, but Ukraine is, is a little bit smaller than the size of Texas. Ukraine's farmland is about the size of Illinois plus Wisconsin combined. Um, there are estimates that the amount of land that's unsuitable for use due to landmines, contamination with explosive ordnance, and exposure to armed hostilities is about the size of Massachusetts and Vermont combined, and that the amount of land that is exposed to, um, that potentially exposed to landmines is about the size of Vermont. So just, I, 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 you know, we can get lost in huge numbers, but this helps us um, envision what the, what the scale is. Looking at the process of demining, there are two types of demining. There's operational demining, which means when you're in battle, you're quickly clearing mines to secure the, uh, the safe advance or retreat of troops. That's not what needs to happen on Ukraine's agricultural land. Um, what needs to happen there is called humanitarian demining, which is a much more time-intensive and resource-intensive process involving multiple steps. Um, up here, uh, it, it's a non-technical survey, which is interviews with, with communities, looking at maps of where battles have taken place, technical surveys done with equipment, clearance of mine using, a, using uh, machinery, and then certification that, that land is safe for use again. There's a lot of activity in demining within Ukraine and a lot of different agencies and ministries involved. All, all, this, a lot of this bureaucracy was in place before Russia invaded in February 2022 because landmines were used when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. So the bureaucracy was already in place. It was already evolving. It's continued to evolve since the present war. Most important things are that the Ministry of Defense, um, which runs the National Mine Action Authority, it released an action plan for demining agricultural land in Ukraine in March of this year. So there is a government plan in place to demine Ukraine's agricultural land. And there's been progress made against that plan that's updated regularly, and I'll get to that in a moment. In addition to that authority that's led by the Ministry of Defense that runs demining of agricultural land, there's a new interagency working group that's led by Ukraine's Ministry of Economy. Um, they're setting up a nationwide mine action strategy. The Prime Minister of Ukraine is also involved. Um, he convened the first Demine Ukraine Forum. And then international partners are also involved. Uh, the first international donors conference on humanitarian demining in Ukraine was held just this month, and the next one will be held next year. The uh, Ukrainian government provides updates publicly on their progress against this action plan for demining of agricultural land in Ukraine. And they've provided updates in June, in September, and even this month, just a couple of weeks ago. And, and what they're saying right now is that of the land that they have 
um, that they have determined needs to be surveyed and if necessary, cleared. They have surveyed about 48% of it, so almost, almost half of the land that they, they've surveyed, and they have returned to use about 36%. So they're making progress. That was just a, 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 a recent press release on the progress. Um, so the upside is that there is significant momentum around demining in Ukraine, both within the Ukrainian government and among Ukraine's partners, and that they're making progress. The reality is that resource needs remain staggering, and estimates of the amount of funding that's need to demine Ukraine is over $37 billion, according to the World Bank and other partners. Some estimates say that at the rate of progress, given the resources that they have now and the number of deminers and the, the nature of equipment, complete demining of Ukraine, Ukraine's territory could take decades or even centuries, given the rate of progress today. So in the meantime, farmers are taking matters into their own hands. <clears throat> um, you probably have heard some stories about farmers um, uh, 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 walking fields or creating equipment of their own. Um, one, one farmer, um, we, we, we see these in the news, but um, one farmer said, at first we waited for the state to demine our fields, then we understood it wouldn't happen, so we decided to do it ourselves. Again, they're walking the fields themselves with metal detectors, they're, they're suiting their tractors with armor and running the tractors through fields. Um, one story, this is a story that we, that's out of a local newspaper in Ukraine about what one farmer who has, again, 300 hectares, um, a third of that is mined, and I think the one thing that's incredibly poignant here is that it's cheaper today to buy a new field than to demine the field that this farmer has. So incredible um, uh, amount of cost and resources involved in, in demining. In addition to demining them, you know, doing the demining themselves, farmers are also relying on what they call dark demining, which is um, using services um, of deminers that are uncertified. So they'll do demining, but they can't necessarily guarantee that the land that they've surveyed and cleared is fully clear of mines. And as a result, accidents are reportedly common. Across Ukraine, we've had almost 250 civilians who've been killed by landmines and over 520 who've been injured by landmines in the current war. In terms of effects on agriculture, getting to the focus of our conversation today, it's both the fear of the existence of landmines and also the existence of landmines that is preventing farmers from working on their soil. And, um, and I think it's, it, it's very interesting to look at recent estimates out of USDA about looking at wheat production only, and again, we know that Ukraine's a major producer of numerous commodities, but looking at wheat production only, <clears throat> USDA was estimating that this year, wheat production is down, down 16% compared to the five-year average, but yields per hectare are up 13% compared to the five-year average. So production levels are down overall, but yields per acre are up, which is suggesting that production declines are perhaps more due more to a reduction in land harvested than to a lack of access to inputs. And harvested area is down 26% compared to the five-year average. This map was released this month by NASA, the NASA Harvest Program, which shows a what they're calling a scar across Ukraine's land, showing the land that's been abandoned as a the agricultural land that has been abandoned as a result of the war. In terms of impacts of demining on, on agriculture, it's it's the presence of landmines on agricultural land and also the process of demining 
that both affect agricultural productivity. So having landmines on land reduces productivity and removing landmines from land also reduces productivity. Why is that? Because demining, the safest and fastest way to demine is through exploding ordnance. Um, with, with, with remarkable impacts on soil, it compacts, so it creates a crater, compact soil, displaces soil, which affects soil fertility, um, also releases um, uh, toxic substances, not only into soil, but also into waterways. Um, so there's impacts on the physical structure on soil. There are chemicals that leak into soil and to waterways. Um, when it comes to pollution that is caused through the process of demining, um, I've seen very little discussion of this, but I have seen estimates of the, the, the huge cost that this is also putting onto farmers. CSIS is in the process of researching, but also writing a report on demining and some other aspects of Ukraine's agriculture sector, and we'll be publishing that in, uh, later this year. Some of the recommendations that we're putting forward for the Ukrainian government and for other partners involved in demining in Ukraine's agricultural land that are relevant to this conversation are, first of all, to expedite the provision of humanitarian demining, including from increased funding from international partners. We do see a prioritization of this, but really this needs to be much prioritized to, to a, a much greater extent given the huge cost that's going to be involved in demining. Um, I think it's really important to lower the cost to farmers of demining. The Ukrainian government announced just recently uh, what they're calling the Prozoro uh, tender system, where farmers can go to this, to essentially a market for deminers, select a deminer, the farmers pay for it, and then the Ukrainian government reimburses them for half of the cost. That's newly announced. Ukrainian government is considering you know, what do we do um, to help farmers financially, the farmers who have already paid for demining. I think any funding that farmers are using to demine any amount of their own funding that they're using to demine is funding that they're not using to purchase inputs and to do other activities necessary to produce um, to produce crops. So the more money that they're spending demining, the less the less they'll produce overall. Um, and finally, I think that there need to be unique uh, special considerations for the unique needs of agricultural soil, including taking steps to reduce soil and water pollution. Uh, from demining and also to implement soil testing to ensure soil quality after lands have been demined. Thank you. Thank you very much, Caitlin, for a rather sobering overview. Um, let's collect a few questions if anybody still wants to stick around a little bit before lunchtime. Um, while you're thinking of your questions, Antonina, there is a question to you that we've received um, online. And you had on your slide, I believe, the, 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 the note that Ukraine is the number eight global producer of honey. And we do have a question about how the honey industry in Ukraine is, is holding up. Um, but let me collect a few questions from the audience. Do you, anybody would like to ask anything? Please, sir, do it, identify yourself. And there's a mic coming uh, around. Uh, Ed Price from Texas A&M. Uh, um, after a, a landmine or other ordinance is exploded, it releases these uh, chemicals into the soil. What do you know about the chemicals that are released, and how long will it take, and how will they be remediated? Good, good question. Um, yes, over here. Right, right next to you. Oh. <laughs> 
Joanna Veltri with EFAD. Um, I really appreciate the recommendations at the end, how crisp they were. I'm wondering what uptake you're finding for those recommendations and beyond the government of Ukraine, if you're finding that there are other sources who are actively contributing to that. Also very interesting, um, as Dr. Price um, uh, mentioned, the, the impacts. I'm wondering if there are sort of indications that there are some remediation, um, ways to remediate that, um, those effects. Okay, I'm gonna throw a last question as well. Um, upstairs, uh, President Adesina from the African Development Bank said that uh, they would like Africa to make up for the shortage of uh, imports they've, they've had from Ukraine and Russia uh, by producing that food themselves. So maybe, uh, uh, David, you, you'd like to take that, or Joe, if you have a comment on that. How, how possible is that, and um, how, do you, how do you see that evolving? Um, so let's start with you, um, uh, Antonina, on the, on the honey question and anything else that you might want to, uh, to, to speak to. Very briefly, please. Uh, talking about honey uh, industry, uh, every industry actually of agriculture being uh, affected by the war, unfortunately, including honey uh, industry, but not so much as wheat production. Uh, but still, uh, we are producing honey and export this. So I would say that maybe 20% um, were affected uh, according to the um, that uh, territories that have been occupied or uh, under uh, active hostilities now. Great. Thank, thanks, Antonina. Caitlin, a lot of questions on uh, the future uh, with, with all these mines in the ground. Sure, thanks. Um, uh, uh, if I forget any question, I might uh, ask for a repeat. But um, in terms of soil contamination, um, some evidence that we're seeing out of Cam Cambodia, for example, where demining happened, that the, the presence of some of the toxic chemicals that were um, uh, existing in the, in the mines themselves, the presence of those chemicals increased by up to 30% in a one meter radius um, of where the detonation happened. Um, there isn't very much written um, about soil cont contamination, about water contamination, and about efforts to, uh, ways that we might mitigate this. Um, one thing that I've seen written is about um, per perhaps um, um, spreading soil or just diluting it to d dilute the contamination, but of course that doesn't get rid of it. Um, I think that it's, it, it's, it's an area that needs more attention, particularly in the case of Ukraine, given the scale of, of mining and also given the scale of production there, which is why um, um, uh, we're gonna recommend some more attention there. It could be the case that there is attention to this in Ukraine's national strategy for demining agricultural land, but the strategy itself is confidential, so we can't access it. Um, we don't know, but my, my hunch is that is that the Emphasis on is on demining as quickly as possible, which unfortunately is the is, is the way that's most destructive to agricultural lands. Um, your question, Joanne, I think was about um, uh, activity within the U within the Ukrainian government and by support from U from, from Ukraine's partners, um, something along those lines. And uh, there is a lot of support financially and otherwise from many countries and many other organizations. The International Donors Conference to Support Humanitarian Demining in Ukraine that was held earlier this month. There were representatives from 40 countries and international partners there. Um, at least $250 million um, was pledged as of this year by all partners, with the US government being the largest bilateral donor. All of that is incredibly important. I'm glad to see recognition of this, not just uh, through, through funding, but also through technical support, through donations of new equipment, 
um, all of that. But when you compare that to the billions of dollars that are needed to demine Ukraine's agricultural land, I think that it needs, it, it's something that needs to be um, a, a, a much stronger priority in countries' assistance packages for Ukraine. Um, again, given their, given their need and given the importance of Ukraine's agriculture sector for its own economic recovery and for global food security. So thanks for those questions. Great. Th thanks, Caitlin. Uh, over to you, Joe. And then maybe I can, there's another question online that I can pass to you, David. It's, it's sort of the a more optimistic for horsemen. Uh, the, the question is, what, what are the priorities for building greater resilience to shocks like this in, in low-income countries? Do you want to yeah, take the no, one in so, Africa? So let me take the, the first one, and David will probably want to chime in as well. I mean, I think in, in, in one sense, the, the war in Ukraine is no different than as David showed on his export restriction chart, in one sense, very similar to what we saw in 2007-8 and 2010-11. In fact, at the time, back during those food price crises, the concern was productivity in Africa and how little investment had been given to, the, to Africa for so many years. And I think that, that lesson is still there. I mean, I, I think, you know, USAID, it's a shame Dina's not here, but, uh, you know, the launch the Feed the Future and all these things, in fact, trying to address some of those issues. So the productivity is really, increasing productivity is really important. Increasing or improving infrastructure. I mean, that's, uh, you know, when you, you, you know, anyone with experience in, in some areas of, of Africa or elsewhere know that getting, transporting, and other sorts of things is very, very difficult. But I, I do think that, that self-sufficiency for the sake of self-sufficiency is not the right answer either. That is, you, you, yes, absolutely, we should improve productivity, but you should take advantage of low-cost uh, food if it's available and to supplement needs because you can't, you know, it, there are droughts that, uh, uh, that uh, impact areas that, so you need to be, uh, be able to buy supplies when you need, import more, and I think that's why, you know, trade is so important, and I think it goes hand-in-hand hand with these other issues. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point on trade because you've seen actually in your slides, right, that, that some of the, the shortfalls have been actually made up now by, by other producers, so hugely important. David? Yes, and it's a, it's a good segue. I think, yes, uh, Africa has still a huge potential to increase productivity, and, and it's needed both to increase the income of African farmers, uh, but also to, to lead to uh, a stronger production on the continent. I would just say the goal is not to replace Ukraine and, and Russia, um, because if you, you start with this strategy, actually it will fail. I mean, in terms of purely comparative advantage, Russia and Ukraine have been key grain exporters for 200 years, and they are, except you know, in the Soviet Union, but structurally at least they have soil, they have land, they have water, and even with climate change, for example, Russia is going to be one of the countries that will increase its productivity and not decrease it. So, I mean, there are some structural things. Now, the question is more when you think about the product space, in which product Africa can increase. It's not to compete Ukraine on, on wheat. And that's why initiatives like VAX, you know, is important to make sure that we have diversity of crops adapted to uh, African soil, but also to African consumers. So, you know that, yes, we want to increase productivity, but the question in what? And not just say, oh, we lack rice or we lack wheat, so we have to do it. No. So, and overall, that contributes to create resilience. I mean, today the world has been through a lot of shocks, 
but because we have strong producer in Latin America that we didn't have 70 years ago, actually in the 70s, the situation was much more risky when the US were representing half of the world market of cereals. So diversity is important. Having more producers in Africa will make Africa better and will make the world better. And really, I think that this question of the diversity of product, diversity of producers, better access to, to, to knowledge and resources will help to, to make this resilience. But trade is part of the resilience strategy. We have seen it for fertilizer. We see it for, for product. Because no one country, except potentially a few very big countries, can say, I know that my production every year will be what I need. No. Major drought, major flood, you are pretty happy to find another country that is ready to trade with you. But this country doesn't, you know, it's like I always say, it's like your grocery shop at the corner of, the, of your block. If no one goes there on a regular basis, the shop closes, and when at midnight you need something, too bad. So that's where we need a good and resilient global system and coordination. Okay, um, thank you so much. Do we have any last questions? You guys are really <laughs> very, very uh, nice to stay. Um, any, any final questions for our speakers? Uh, Bob Thompson. No, I, I, I just think in these discussions, the, the one th point that needs to be made over and over is the three most fertile soils resources to the planet are the corn belt that we're in right here, the black soils region of Ukraine and Russia, and the pomp of Argentina. And here we're talking about an area larger than the state of Iowa that's heavily mined of one of the three most fertile soils resources of the planet. And the, the future food security of the planet needs this agricultural asset. Yeah, well, and, and I think the point that Caitlin made, that that soil, even when the war is over, the, there's a danger of contamination there. That seems, seems very real. Okay. Um, did I see another hand? Yes. What, you're the final question. <laughs> so thank you for the, the presentations. Um, my question is concerning the export market to Europe. And so there seems to be um, some restrictions being placed by European countries uh, for uh, grain exported from Ukraine. And uh, I just wanted, you know, an opinion about that. Thank you. Okay, maybe with the Polish election, uh, that, that's now not a, such an issue. Joe, do you want to take that one? Yeah, no, this is not the, the way grain normally flows out of Ukraine, you know, through, through those countries. And I think it, it, a lot of it last year was ending up lo in local markets depressing price, so there was a lot of concern. And you have to remember a lot of it was competing for conveyances too. So barge traffic, elevators, all of that, you know, uh, uh, a lot of farmers in those bordering countries were decided to hold grain thinking, okay, this will pass and we'll be able to, to sell it at a time when prices were really high. And of course, by the end of the year, or they weren't nearly as high. So there was a lot of frustration, I think, coming out of 2022. So they, uh, Ukraine agreed to at least tr uh, just to transship grain through there. That still means competition for conveyances and other things. 
Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, recently said enough of that. And, and apparently, I, I saw some news item yesterday where Poland is trying to now negotiate something with Ukraine. But it, it's obviously a source of tension. Uh, you know, uh, again, sun, uh, sunflower oil, which, you know, major export for Ukraine, it was cheaper to, to uh, because a lot of those crush facilities are in ports and other things. While those ports were blocked, they were shipping a lot of sun seed out to places like Bulgaria that were doing the crushing. And Bulgaria crushers were more than happy to get that seed, less so their farmers. And I think it's those, it's those sort of tensions that you know emerge out of it. And it, it's, it's really unfortunate. And, and hopefully, I mean, I, frankly, I would have liked to seen the Europeans, uh, the, the commission try to do more to compensate those farmers rather than penalize um, Ukraine through it because I, uh, well, yeah. did you want to add anything? Let me add. Few uh, let's have, let's hear that. from Antonina. And oh, yes. Yeah. She's still on. Yep. Yeah. 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 I'm on still. So, talking about uh, Ukrainian export through uh, European borders, yes, of course, it was not regular our uh, export and uh, it's obvious that European market was oversaturated with uh, Ukrainian grain, but you know, under those circumstances, uh, first of all, we are not only competitors but friends. And we, it was really sad that five countries, European countries, introduced a ban for Ukrainian uh, uh, grain. But you know, uh, in September, this ban was uh, eliminated. Uh, but some countries are continued to do their own ban. Uh, but Romania is our now our main road uh, for export of grain uh, from Ukraine. Almost 60% of our grain export now goes through Romania, especially through ports of Constanza, and that is why the new brewers are uh, po uh, the new brewer ports are so important. Uh, uh, and um, we got some. Um, uh, lower price for uh, re-export, like, for transshipment of grains through Moldova to, to get it into Romania. But of, of course, it, it meets a lot of complications in terms of uh, documents because we need to prove that that grain goes uh, for re-export. Uh, and it, it is, we need to present like a lot of invoices and contracts from the uh, producer up to the final uh, consumer uh, where this grain goes. And there is no plans to increase capacity of Constanza port because, you know, before the war, uh, Constanza was not a port that Ukraine would normally use. And they believe that uh, we will win this war and uh, Ukrainian ports will uh, operate and then we will not need it anymore as well. So it, there are a lot of complications with uh, Ukrainian exports through Europe but it still goes and we really appreciate all the support of those countries that provide us. Great, David, very briefly. Yes, no, I mean, that's where geography matters, you know. Uh, exporting Ukrainian grain through Europe was okay as a kind of last solution, but structurally it has to go through the Black Sea, that's where the markets are, that's where the demand from the Middle East is important, you know, that's another important part of the world that import grains. And it has to be done in a cost-effective way, and it's not by crossing Europe, getting to the Baltic Sea, and then going back to Lebanon, that you are going to be very efficient environmentally or economically. Yeah. So that's why opening Black Sea 
is important. And now I think the political economy of all of this also is what is a kind of reminder. You know, it's like if tomorrow Canada cannot export through their ports, for its ports, and so all the grain of Canada has to go through the Midwest, and even if all farmers are friends, I'm pretty sure that in the US people will say, what is going on now? Uh, and uh, so. Yes, politicians do need to always listen to their farmers as well, right? Um, let me thank Dina uh, and, and Dylan Dewey for, for joining us. They've had to leave to another engagement. And a big, big thanks to our four speakers that remain with us. And thanks to all of you for, for joining us um, for, for this really important discussion. And as you hear, the story is far from over. Um, so uh, we will continue to do some analysis on, on this. And CSIS will have its uh, report out soon. So we're looking forward to that as well. Many, many thanks. Thank you.